Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. In honor of the Thanksgiving holiday, we have a special episode for you. Who knew that the food and beverage industry was ripe for disruption using the power of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data? Well, Jason Cohen sure did. Jason Cohen is the founder and CEO of Analytical Flavor Systems, a startup focusing on bringing the power of AI and machine learning to the world of flavors and sensory science. Jason started his company after studying sensory science and computer science at Penn State, as well as founding the Tea Institute, a research group devoted to tea tasting. He's even a professional coffee, tea, and beer taster, so he knows his stuff. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to the Masters of Data podcast, and I am very excited to finally have Jason Cohen, the founder and CEO of Analytical Flavor Systems, on here. We've been trying to get together for a few months now, so great to have you on, Jason. Thanks for having me. You and I had a conversation one late night in New York, kind of getting to know you a little bit, and it was definitely one of the Definitely. I learned a lot, you know, about your background and, you know, like we always do on this podcast, we like to humanize it by understanding, you know, who the people are that we're talking to and, and kind of how you, you got the way you were. So tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you get into, and we'll talk more about this later, but into sensory science and into the science of flavor. How'd you, how'd you arrive at that? Yeah, I start. I started as a professional tea taster. I went to mainland China in 2007, originally to study politics. And it, it turns out blonde hair, blue eyes, bad Chinese doesn't really endear me to asking about the, the government. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just kind of fell into to tasting tea and working in the tea market in Kunming and talking with these older men. And I got really, really into it and then went and lived on Makabari Tea Plantation to pick and harvest my own tea. Wow. And then when I went to Penn State, I started the Tea Institute of Penn State, an an interdisciplinary research institute for the study and preservation of tea, tea ceremony, and tea culture. And I I started doing research on on the flavor of tea and what people were tasting. And I, I pretty quickly found that sensory science wasn't a predictive science. Mm -hmm. It was only explanatory science. And you had to collect empirical results through frequentist statistical hypothesis testing in order to make any inferences. And I really wanted to be able to to make predictions about new products and new flavors and new sets of flavors. So I moved from sensory science to to machine learning in the Department of Computer Science and ISD. And I did that for about three and a half years before starting this this company. And so what interested you so much about flavor in particular, you just you just enjoyed the experience of, of tea tasting so much, you just wanted to kind of go deep on that. I mean, what, what really fascinated you about that discipline? A few things. So I started in tea, and, and the majority of my research was in tea, but pretty quickly my interests broadened. I started looking, when I, when I was looking for inspiration about systems that would work to, to understand what people were tasting, I first I looked at coffee and realized that coffee didn't have anything, and then I looked at wine and beer and realized that they didn't have anything. I realized that, the, that, that no one had anything that worked uh, in order to, that, that was predictive. Yeah. And it became, you know, part of it became a quest in itself. Everyone eats, everyone, you know, most people really enjoy flavor, aroma, and texture. It's, it's a universal human experience, but we don't understand it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, the, the biggest mysteries still is how the physiology of smell you know, we don't know if it's lock and key. We don't know if it's vibrating strings. 
We know that humans can tell the difference between billions. The most recent publication said trillions of different smells, but we have no idea how it works. Wow. And so for us, working on the other side of it, trying to quantify what, what someone tastes or what someone smells, that was really difficult because it's not something that has an easily verifiable empirical ground truth, right? You can't go back to to the test and say, okay, well, you know, true value was a three and we predicted a 2.9. There, there's no way to do that. In, in Is it because it's so subjective? Because flavor is subjective? Or you know, a lot of, a lot of people... It's hard to measure. A lot of people think that, that flavor is subjective. But we look at it is that there's large-scale convergence across certain demographics or certain consumer cohorts and what someone is going to perceive in a product. And there, there's very obviously, there's large scale convergence in what people are going to like in products. That's why nationally successful products exist. And so we, we know that it's not just, you know, a personal, unquantitative experience. We know that, there, that there's general agreement about what a lemon tastes like, and there's general agreement about, about what flavors are good and bad. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't make it an easily verifiable, quantifiable number. And so for us, turning it into those types of numbers in order to be able to make predictions about what people taste and smell, that's, that's been a, a really long journey. And it's been a hard and interesting problem to work on that, that we think is really valuable. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's I think it's fascinating. And so you so you basically applied the things you were learning on the computer science at the spectrum with machine learning and with 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 data mining and, and, and all those disciplines to, you know, this area of sensory science and flavor and you started analytical flavor systems. Yeah, exactly. And I went the other way. Actually, I came from come from an entirely applied background. I had um you know, when I went into the machine learning, I was doing machine learning specifically to model human sensory perception. So I went, I went backwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but, but, you know, I, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's how you make these connections because you, you had a very tight focus area. So you were, you were seeing what could help you, you know, what disciplines you could bring to the table to help you solve a very specific problem. I think that's, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. And applying it to your passion. Yeah. And so when, when, when all of those models started to work, we, then, we, then we started analytical flavor systems together. And that was in June 2013. And, and, what is, and, what, and when you actually guys actually formed the company, so what does the company actually do? So did you guys build, did you guys build a system that, you, that you're using to kind of codify this and, and productize? I mean, what, what did you guys actually end up building? What it's evolved into, I'll tell you what we have now, yeah. which is not what we were originally building, of course, but we have an, an AI platform that models human sensory perception to predict consumer preference. And we use that to help food and beverage companies develop new products, optimize their existing brands, and, and to help, enter, help them enter new markets with new consumers and understand their preferences so that they can develop more successful, better tasting products for everyone. Mm -hmm. Is that the thing you call the gastrograph? Is that right? Yeah, Gastrograph AI is the platform. And and how how does that, you know, so how is that going to work for these customers? You, you and I talk a little bit about some of the stories about what goes into creating some of these products. And I know most of the people listening to this have no idea about the level of effort that food companies going into creating new products. I mean, talk a little bit about that. I mean, what does that actually look like for some company wanting to create a new product? What's the effort and why would what you guys build actually help with that? Yeah, billions of dollars. People can't believe sometimes when they when they find out if they're outside of the food and beverage industry that CBG companies, consumer packaged good companies, spend billions of dollars a year in order to, to develop new products and bring them to market. And just a great majority of them fail, the individual products. It is increasingly difficult to create a competitive product that differentiates itself with flavor, aroma, and texture. 
And so companies go to great extents to figure out if their products are going to be successful. They have professional tasters on staff. They have product formulators developing products and testing the perception against professional tasters. If the professional tasters give them positive feedback, then it can go to a consumer panel where companies can recruit 20 or 30 or 40 different, you know, plus sometimes, sometimes more consumers to taste a product and tell them if they like it or dislike it. Mm -hmm. So preference and hedonic test. And then they can go to, to a market test or they could go to a competitive test like a 60 40 test where you take your product that you're developing and a competitor product and you say you know which product do you like and they're doing this blind and, and your product needs to win 60 40 so that you think that you have a 60 you know 60 percent of consumers prefer your product which gives you a better chance of success most of these things these are not predictive methods right you're you have to go through all of the work up front you have to develop the product up front you have to recruit the people up front you have to train the people up front and let's say that that you do that and and the majority of the time you it, re, it results in a in a failed test right that product is not preferred you have to do that all over again right you have to start from square one and do that all over again in order to in order to try to bring a product to market so companies are spending billions of dollars every year and i think that there's a better way and as part of what if if i understood right what you guys are doing with this is that you can basically model how people would respond to a certain set of flavors right without actually having to go ask somebody to taste it you could say that this group of people would feel this way about you know this i guess chemical composition is that what it really comes down to Yes, exactly. So what we would do is we would take what a professional taster inside one of these CPG companies, what they taste in the product. And then just like Google Translate can translate French into Italian, Italian into Chinese, we can translate what what a professional taster tastes and translate that to any target demographic. So if you want to develop a product that's targeted at the Northeastern United States, or you wanted to develop a product for Hispanic Americans, we could model that consumer demographic and show you how your product is going to be perceived or show these companies how their product is going to be perceived and who's going to like them and how much they're going to like them. And because that's all predictive, right, they can actually start with verifiable targets and they can, we can predict an optimal flavor profile and they can go develop that product and then they can test it immediately against the consumer panel and prove that our model is accurate and that it's going to result in more successful product developments. And where where does that where does that understanding of these different subgroups come from? Is that something that's kind of well known in the industry, or did you guys actually have to go out there and figure that out? No, we had we we had to do it the hard way. So we actually go out and do our own large scale demographic surveys where we recruit wow. consumers to come in and taste products for us, and we use that to to build a translation layer so that any new products that are developed and any new data that comes into our system, we can then translate that and 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 use that translated data to make further predictions for that consumer group. And so we've done that around the world now. We've done that in, in North America, in Europe, in Japan, in Indonesia, New Zealand, Australia, and we continue to do large-scale demographic surveys. And you know, what I, I think one of the things that's really different about our system is that, that that data continues to build on itself, right? It's not snapshot data. It's training yeah. data for the model. And we can always go back and engineer new features and engineer new interesting features and search for new patterns in the data that make that makes our overall model stronger. We, you know, as you're, as you're explaining this, I remember I was, I was hearing on the news a few days ago that, yeah, I believe it was Coke had bought some very niche soda product from Maine. Did you hear about that? I forget the name of the soda, but apparently like only people in Maine like it. And and I think about where I grew up in North Carolina, there was a there's this product called Cheerwine that you know apparently people only in the, the Carolinas like. And so it seems like that that's part of what you're what you're talking about is that these bigger companies 
they're having a hard time, you know, getting new customer bases. So one of Maybe the best way for them to do it is actually go out and buy these clearly successful niche products and understand why those are successful. Is, is that right? Well, you know, we we see a lot of that M&A strategy. And I think that that M&A strategy is interesting. I think sometimes it can result in success. But, you know, just as frequently as we see a successful acquisition, we, you know, we, we see unsuccessful acquisitions. So if you're a CPG and you're willing to spend, you know, 20 to 30 X revenue, forward looking revenue multiple on a breakout brand, you still need the infrastructure to manage that brand, to understand why that brand is successful and to continue to grow that brand, right? Otherwise, you just spent a lot of money on a product that's going to move out of, of preference. A lot of products, you know, trend for a while and then begin to decline if there's no new innovation. So that type of M&A isn't, isn't a cure-all. It can be used if you're willing to trade cash for growth, right, then it can work in the short term. But I think that CPG companies really need to invest in their own innovation strategy and their ability to create good products in-house. Because if not, then, then, then what are they, right? And what are they doing? They can't rely on their always being someone else to do the innovation. No, that, that, you know, that, that definitely makes sense. You know, one thing I was reading a interview that you did and you were, you were, you were talking about how a lot of food today is, you know, engineered for the lowest common denominator. So it's, it's, it's engineered for something that's going to clearly have the, the widest appeal. And, and I think what you were saying in the article, and I'd be definitely interested in hearing what you think about it now is that what you guys are developing in this, this new approach would allow companies to tailor products to a much tighter audience and then get better, actually have those products do better in that particular demographic? Is that the, is that, is, did I understand that right? Exactly, exactly. You know, it used to be that you could win a national market or an international market with a single product, right? You had, mm -hmm. you had products like Coca-Cola, which is, is available all over the world. And you have products like Budweiser, which is available all over the world. And it used to be that that was, you know, enough. You could have a single driver. But that's no longer the case. The The markets are more competitive than ever before. There are where Coke used to be a singular soda and, and Budweiser used to be a singular beer, right? You now have thousands of products that are each right. a better fit for a narrower consumer demographic than, than a single product can be a fit for everyone. And so the larger your target demographic, the larger your consumer cohort, the less optimized your product can be and the more likely that you're going to face the innovator's dilemma, right? Where there's no one product competitive with you, but there are hundreds of products that are competitive with you. And so it's a death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. You, you, well, you know what it reminded, what it reminded me of is I, I don't, you tell me if this analogy makes sense to you, but you know, we, we've moved in like the media market from having mass marketed lowest common denominator shows that were on, you know, a few channels on the TV, maybe a few cable channels to the point where it seems like, you know, Netflix is basically using effectively similar technologies to profile sections of their customer base to target very specific movies and TV shows that some other group over here just thinks is crap, but they, this group loves it. And so they can target very, very specifically to small subgroups. Do you, so do you feel like, is that, is that kind of a, a good analogy for what's going on here is that you could basically effectively one of these companies if they if they did it right they could effectively start doing what netflix did for movies for 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 flavors and for food that's that yeah that's a perfect analogy and and we actually use an example like that in our presentations where we we talk about how 
Netflix has been successful because it has a model of consumer preference and it's able to continue to develop new movies and TV shows, new content to meet changing consumer preference. So, you know, when it comes to, to food and beverage, your preferences today are not the same as your preferences a few years ago, and they're not going to be the same as your preferences in a few years. In order to keep up with changing consumer preference, you have to have an innovation strategy that's going to develop products that people are going to like today, that people are going to like in a year, and that people are going to like in two years. And in order to do that, you really have to understand how preferences are changing, where preferences are changing, how it's different between different demographic groups and that different consumer cohorts, right? With people with, who have different experiences. And so exactly, you know, being able to tailor products to specific people, you know, the, the most amazing thing about Netflix is that not everyone likes the same types of movies. Not everyone likes the same type of TV. And it used to be that you, you had to go for lowest common denominator movies, movies and TV shows in order to fill primetime space, right? You, you needed to have things that were generally well-liked. Mm -hmm. But generally well-liked, non-polarizing products, or generally well-liked products, means that no one loves them because no one dislikes them, right? Right. Frequently, the most competitive products are the most polarizing. And Netflix, because it's a, a streaming platform, because it's a, you know, always available when there's no schedules, it can have polarizing shows and polarizing content that maybe 50%, maybe 80% don't like it, but that 20% is willing to stay for it. Mm -hmm. And we, we think that you can do the same thing in food and beverage where you can create brands or you can create product portfolios where each product in that portfolio is targeted at a specific cohort or demographic that's going to love it. Right. And it's OK if no one else loves it because you'll have a different product for them. But traditional sensory science and traditional product development practices can't do that. Right. That it, it drags you to some generally acceptable, low polarization product. Do you know what's the what's the general response? Because, I mean, as you just stated, kind of like traditional way of approaching this is to do more of these lowest common denominator. Do you do you feel like you're you're starting to, you know, penetrate the veil for some of these, the industry to think about this? Or are you, you know, people still know I'm not ready for that? I mean, what's the response been? No, the, the response has been amazing. We are overwhelmed by the acceptance of this. You know, one of the things about CPGs is if you, if you ask them in confidence, just about all of them will tell you that they have a 90% failure rate, a 95% failure rate, right? Give or take a few hmm. percentage points, but Wow. everyone freely admits, right, that the majority of their innovations are not successful, whether that's from, you know, concept development to initial prototyping to professional panels to consumer panels to limited market response to first three years on the market, right? We, what we see on average is a 95% failure rate. And because of that, everyone is looking for new technologies. Everyone's looking for better, smarter ways. And, you know, we happen to be now, when we started, we weren't, but when we, now we're in a in a buzzy market for, for machine learning and artificial intelligence, and everyone's looking for these types of solutions. But you know, when we, we started before machine learning and AI was, was a buzzword, we started back when it was a, a niche technology that was just gaining some traction after the AI winter. And so as an, as an early mover on this technology, we have a lot more credibility right. now and a lot more proof points for these companies when they say, well, you know, how can you do this? Prove to us that you can do this. Prove to us that this is, that this is better than what our in-house development models can do. It's become increasingly easy for us to do that and to do that quickly and, and to start making it a real impact with the, the CPG companies that we work with. Now, do you think, I mean, one, one thing that I, I know I've, I've done a lot of interviews with people talking about AI machine learning, the thing that always comes up is a bias because there's kind of an inherent 
bias sometimes in the way data is collected and put into the machines, but it, you know, into the, into the actual algorithms and how they're predicting stuff. But in, in some sense, I'm almost wondering if this actually could be a way to allow these food companies to actually reach some of these, you know, very particular target markets that have maybe been largely ignored. Because, you know, if you're if you're thinking about even a country like U.S., don't even go outside of the U.S., there's so many people coming in. There's actually a lot of subgroups already that maybe aren't, you know, they're not really maybe getting the love from the the, the larger food market. I mean, is that, does that sound right to you? Do you think it would actually help with that? Or, I mean, how, how do you think about that problem in particular? I do think it'll help with that. I think that it'll seriously help underserved markets. And, you know, I, I even have a personal example of that. I'm Eastern European Jewish, right? No blonde hair and blue eyes because the Vikings invaded the Ukraine in the 1400s. Someone in my family didn't have a great time. No one, <laughs> no one develops products, right, for my demographic, for my genetic profile, right? And, and even a larger demographic, like there's no, there's not a beer in the United States developed for the Chinese American palate. And that's a group that, that buys beer. So, you know, you look at that and you say, is, is machine learning going to cause bias? Is it going to give people who like sweet things more sweet things? I don't think that that's what's going to happen. One, because it's not the case that if you consume more sweet things, you always want more sweet things, right? Two, because you can, you know, just like no one starts off drinking a double imperial IPA, right? There's always going to be a progression in these products. And, and you can create progressions to help consumers appreciate better products, right? In, in the CPG industry, you call that a value ladder and help to move them to more interesting, more innovative products. And third is because there's so many underserved demographics. There's all, so many underserved preferences that this technology is a net benefit, one. And two, it's not like we're going to prevent anyone from exploring, right? If someone wants to grab a product that's that's different or that's not recommended for them, that's great. They should have that experience and maybe they'll develop new preferences based off of it. You know, one thing that you, you said kind of stood out to me too is, you know, not not knowing your, your area nearly as deeply, obviously. How much of this, is there a sense for how much of this is genetic versus learned? Because I, I, just for example, like I read a article this the other day, I think it was it was about, you know, that, you know, kids in Mexico didn't grow up liking really hot flavors and they kept, you know, their families kept feeding it to them until, they, you know, they were like, I don't know, like 11 or 12 and now yeah. they suddenly like really hot flavors. So, I mean, do you, what, what's, what's the sense of like how much of this is genetic versus how much of this is kind of culturally learned? Mm -hmm. So for the most part, perception is genetic. Your perception can go through some adaptation due to repeat exposure to certain flavors your perception can go through transformations due to an increase in your experience, which increases your ability to identify and thus appreciate subtlety and nuance. But for the most part, perception is nature, whereas preference is nurture. Okay. Right. Individuals who grow up, say, with fermented and spicy foods are going to result in different preferences than someone who grows up in Beijing or Paris or New York. Someone who grows up with mostly seafood is going to result in different preferences than someone who grows up with mostly beef. That example is less United States centric because United States tends to be more omnivorous than many countries. But for the most part, you can attribute a majority of perception to genetics and a majority of preference to culture and upbringing and past experience. I guess that, yeah, it does make sense because I, I, can, I can even see for myself when I grew up in the South and then went to school up in the Northeast, my preferences changed. I ended up liking different oh. foods. But I guess what you're saying is that maybe I was I was tasting them all along, but I didn't have an appreciation for them until I got more experience. Yeah. Well, you you must have been in for quite a shock. 
<laughs> well, there was a there was a Thai restaurant with thirteen levels of hot outside of my grad school, and I was like, "Oh, I'll, uh, I'll try this." I'm like, "Holy, that was a uh, that was that was a lot hotter than I used to." And now it's like no big thing, but yeah, it was a uh, yeah, it was it was it was definitely a, a bit of a culture shock at first. But that's one of the reasons why I try to get my kids to eat different things now, because you know it's you know the earlier you get a taste of it, I guess the better. This is really really interesting, and so I, I guess for. For you, I mean, where is this? Where is this kind of you know going now? I mean, well, when particularly like what what you're with running the company now, what's been the what's been the hardest thing so far? I mean, what's what's the big challenge that you guys are working through to 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 make this technology success? The the biggest challenge right now is scaling. We have a lot of different ways that we can go. We have a lot of different markets that we can enter, but the biggest problem right now is definitely scaling. It's we have demand, we have successful implementations under our belt, we have repeat uh, CPGs that we're working with, but it it's now it's really about going from you know a, a six person company to to building out an executive team, to building out a client success team, and to make this the standard way of developing new successful products. And there's a lot, of course, that goes on behind the scenes in building any company. But I think we have some particular complexities in that we mostly work with large enterprise, you know, multinational CPGs that we have that, you know, the machine learning is core to what we do and that, you know, we, we work on really tight timescales to make product launches successful. Oh, and that, I, I guess on some level, that's a, that's a pretty normal, but extremely you know difficult startup problem is now you found your market you're finding success people want it they want a lot of it and and how do you how do you scale up from that core team so i think that's a good place to be <laughs> yeah it's, it's better than the alternative but it doesn't it doesn't always feel good in the moment <laughs> no, you will look back on it later and laugh right now not not so much yeah i, I don't i don't know if i'll laugh about all the times i flew coach but <laughs> as soon as <laughs> as soon as i can stop sleeping on airplanes and uh or, or start sleeping in a, in a business class seat, then I'll, then, then I'll smile to myself and say it was all worth it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I don't even know if I like flying business class anymore. Flying is not what it used to be. <laughs> but I hear you. <laughs> as long as it's not the middle seat, that's, that's, the, that's the thing. That's good for nobody. Uh, well, this was, uh, this was super interesting, Jason. I, I think what's, what you guys are doing is, is fascinating, and it's, it's probably the most interesting application of artificial intelligence machine learning I've come across so far. So I, I wish you guys all the luck. I'm excited to see where you guys go with this. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.